everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Premier Crew. I'm Hugo. I'm Ben. Benny Mao. We're live. First we are, episode. We are. Yeah, this is exciting. Um, really cool. Slightly weird, but um, all good. It, it is pretty crazy. We've uh, been sort of planning and plotting this for probably, I don't know, a month or two now. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think closer to two, to be honest. Yeah, an ex- yeah, yeah. excessive number of sort of audio editing software, YouTube videos. Big big shout out to Wavy Wayne, who's supported us through. Is that actually his name? Yeah, Wavy yeah. Wayne. He's, yeah, I've watched probably about 10 hours of his content. Um, but yeah, it's good. It's good to be live. Yeah, good to be live. Hopefully it's all working, sounding fine. Um, quite a steep learning curve for Hugo and I uh, doing all this. We're not uh, very technically proficient and there's quite a lot of tech involved with doing something like this, as you can see. Um, but yeah, good, to, good, that we're, good that we're finally getting the first one done. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> we'll give you guys a bit of background as to what we're doing on this episode. We've also got three awesome wines that we're going to be tasting and, and, and discussing. Um, but yeah, a bit of background to us. So we've been friends for probably what? 15, 15 years. 15 years, yeah. Yeah, and we met at school um, and pretty much have been joined at the hip ever since. We went traveling together. I'm sure some of those stories will pop out uh, on various episodes. Uh, and then we now live with each other in North London, which is where we are today. Um, there's a sort of like outbuilding uh, in the sort of basement flat that we we live in. And uh, yeah, we've converted it into a legit podcast studio, which is super cool. Um, and I guess over like the past, I don't know what five to eight years uh food and wine has just like dominated our friendship um pretty much every friday night you find us show, sampling some sort of cool wine or, or finding a cool place to drink them whether that's a wine bar or interesting interesting restaurant uh and that's kind of really what the the foundation of the premier crew is is just us wanting to share our passion with the world yeah um yeah completely agree i think it's <clears throat> i think it's closer to you know, like eight or 10 years, we've been kind of focused on wine now, given that we did the harvest in Bordeaux six years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's certainly closer to eight, if not 10. Um, and yeah, I think the, the exactly, as you said, the reason for starting this is just an extension of our passion. Uh, I think we probably want to make clear from early on that, you know, we're not experts. We're just, we just really, really love wine and we want to be uh, as involved as we can. Um, and this is just a sort of natural, well, maybe not so natural, but it's a, some form of progression of that, of that interest really. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of why we're here. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that journey so far has basically enabled us to try some pretty cool wines at different price points. Um, and, and to really go and like seek out the best places where you can do that across the UK. Um, and through that process, we've tried some amazing wines that hopefully we're going to showcase with you guys. But also, um, we've met some really, really eccentric and at times bizarre, but generally very kind, eccentric people. And I'd say that the wine world is much like other collectibles, you know, like antiques and arts, where the people aren't your everyday average Joe uh, who you meet. They're normally in it for the passion and as such a pretty eccentric people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And what we really want to uh, be sort of bringing to you guys, viewers and listeners, is the characters from the wine trade, as well as the wines. We're going to be trying loads of different wines across the episodes, but it's the characters from, you know, all these different merchants, these different restaurants, just across the wine world, uh, who, you know, are really cool or really interesting or completely wacky, um, slightly crazy. Um, So we're going to bring that essentially to you, 
Um, and we're going to run our episodes. Typically, Hugo and I are going to be doing an episode and then uh, we'll run one with a guest and then it'll come back to us. So we might flex on that slightly depending on, on, on availability of guests and that kind of thing. But we really want to be showcasing you guys, the, the cool individuals who are behind you know, some of the wines are trying and the retailers, retailers where you can find them. I think that, like on that point, I mean, that, that is actually one of the, the things about the wine world is that, you know, typically people can find it perhaps a little bit intimidating because there's yeah, a lot of jargon and big words, but also it's kind of like a space which has lots of small independently run businesses. Um, and it's quite hard for people to actually go and find them because they don't have massive marketing budgets or whatever it is. So hopefully via this podcast, we're going to just show to you guys, amazing wines at different price points, um, you know, that we've had the pleasure and privilege of trying along, along our journey. And then, you know, we'll also be able to show you some of the great characters involved in that. Um, and I guess long-term is hopefully we can just create a bit of a community um, where, you know, we're connecting you guys um, with, with the best that the wine trade has to offer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. I think uh, we've got some ideas about how we might do that, but for another time. Yeah, exactly. And obviously we'll just, we'll just get this out quickly. You know, you're going to, we're going to be releasing on a sort of weekly basis. At least that's the ambition. Uh, don't, don't, don't kill us if, if, if that goes, if that doesn't go to plan, but I think yeah, basically when, it, when the, it doesn't go to plan, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More when, when not if, but basically the, the, um, ideas that we'll be releasing on a weekly basis, you should be able to find us on all audio platforms, whether that's sort of Spotify, uh, Apple, uh, and then we'll also be, alive on sort of social media as well so give us a follow if you want to stay updated on sort of instagram and facebook and that sort of thing yeah exactly and for those watching you already know this but um we're also recording so we've got a couple of cameras um in the studio as well so we'll be putting the videos on youtube if you want to have a look at the the sort of setup of the of the shed and that kind of thing um you know that, that's where we'll kind of be able to see where the, where the action's happening and um we'll get more of that on our on our socials because it's yeah cool space yeah i guess the final thing is is that ideally on each episode, especially the ones where it's just just Ben and I, uh, we're going to be getting at least three wines involved each time. Uh, and they're going to be a little bit different, each of them. So some of them are going to be like, ideally, relatively good value. Others are going to be, you know, pretty wacky and wonderful. So lesser known grapes and lesser known regions. And then hopefully some of them will be, uh, you know, more in that sort of pushing the fine wine category. Um, and I guess that just leaves us to get stuck into what we've got to today. So we've got three wines. The first one um, is the bottle you can probably see on the right-hand side of the camera. And, uh, no, it, no, no, left, left. Oh, left-hand side yeah, of the yeah. camera. Well, yeah, there, yeah. There's, there's the first. For, uh, for any confusion, this tall, slender bottle, this one here. Yeah, tall, slender bottle with the, the gold cap. Um, and basically, that is a wine from France. It's a white wine, uh, and it's from a wine region called Alsace. And it's by a producer called Rolly Gassman, uh, and it's 100% um, Riesling. Um, Benny, we had this wine a long, long time ago. Yeah, but I, I think I first had this when you, you, so you'd bought it and you served it to me blind. Mm. And I was like, fuck, this is really, really good. And we do this thing occasionally where we do, we sort of blind taste each other. Well, that doesn't sound right, does it? We sort of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's quite sexual, man. <laughs> we, do, we do blind taste things <laughs> with each other. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the, the, the idea is, back to topic, um, the idea is that, you know, you just have wine in the glass and you've got to guess the, 
the country and the region of where it's from, perhaps the appellation if you're really backing yourself, uh, the vintage, but also the price as well. Uh, and I think, you know, 98% of the time we get it wrong and that's kind of to be expected. Well, what so we get- 98 is quite generous. Yeah, yeah. Probably on 99.9% of the time we get it wrong. But um, what we typically, what we, you know, we know we're not necessarily going to get the the great varieties or the region or the country. Um, but I'd say what we're usually, well, what we really focus on is, is actually the price. And do we think that wine is, is, is worth the price? So when you try something blind, it's just quite good because you literally have no idea and you just got to use your intuition to understand whether you think it's a, you know, good wine or not. And then, you know, this example, uh, the Rolly Gasman Riesling, um, I can't remember the price, I guess, but I remember thinking this is a really, really good wine. And then you said the price and it retails for about 18 pounds. Um, and I was really shocked because there's a lot of just crud, boring, you know, white wine on the market that isn't, a, you know, it's either that price or perhaps a bit cheaper. It's not worth your time compared to trying something like this. And I think that's when we first had it. And I was like, shit, this is, this is really, really good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a producer I had done a bit of reading about, so I was pretty excited to to bring it in. And also what's cool, we should just say it now, I mean, it's his entry-level stuff um, and he's got a lot of bottlings that are perhaps more site-specific and, and so forth. Um, and also from some other Alsatian grape varieties. Um, but, you know, this is his entry-level one, so he's also got some things that will be a lot more complex, uh, a lot more sophisticated than, than this one. But it's a good one to get started by. Um, you can... We'll be posting the links to the wines on social and also in the description. But um, this is a wine that's sold by London End Wines. Um, and yeah, they've got a really cool selection. So make sure to check them out and check check this wine out if, if you want to. But a little background maybe just on Alsace, because I think it's, the history of Alsace is pretty weird, but it's kind of cool to just set the scene for understanding the wine region and uh, just having a little think about the wines. And basically it's got a pretty complicated history where it's sort of, shifted from being German to French. Have, we, have we said where it is, by the way? Should we mention that it's right yeah. eastern France and it starts sort of just on the other side of the, the Rhine to Strasbourg? Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So Strasbourg's on the French side of the, the Rhine. So it's yes. right on the border and it yeah. runs sort of like north to south. Um, and it's, I don't know in kilometres, but it's, you know, like 20 to 50 kilometres. Yeah, it's probably uh, from, close to 50, but it's not a huge area. No, like, no, not you know, at all. Yeah, not at all. It's yeah, you, small we, area. we were even thinking big, of big wine producing. But we, we were even thinking area. of cycling it, mate. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, we did have an idea in, in uh, well, just before lockdown, actually, to cycle. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think. Well, another. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it back in the diary. We'll get it back we'll, in the diary. We'll get it back in that. Yeah, lock, lockdown crushed a lot of things. A cycling trip to Alsace was one. Um, but yeah, so so that's sort of where it is in the world. But it's useful to to just think about it because. It's basically shifted from being German to French territory over time. So 17th century, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. And then the French kind of annexed it in that century. Take us to then, I think it's like the 19th century, Franco-Prussian War. And um, that basically meant that the French ceded control of the area to the Germans. Then obviously we hit it to World War One, And, um, you know, obviously we know that that ended with the Germans losing that war. And therefore, with the Treaty of Versailles, the territory was handed back over to the French. And then obviously Nazi Germany invaded. It got taken back into the control of the Germans. And then obviously with um, 
World War II ending. It then got taken back by um, France. But I guess Fucking the point hell. is... So, someone's done their homework. <laughs> well, you know, I did a history degree and then that's... that's yeah, that's, that's That's the... That's, yeah, that's all I do, really. But yeah, it, it's important because um, I guess when you think about Alsace and a wine region, you could say that geographically and by climate, it kind of is much more representative of German wine regions. The grapes typically grown there, or the main grape varieties are white ones, so like Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Blanc, uh, Muscat, Pinot Gris. I mean, there's many more than that, but that's just to, to name a couple. And then on the red side, you've got um, a little bit of Pinot Noir. But then from a sort of winemaking cultural perspective, historically, it's probably come at, at more from a sort of French angle. And that makes it just quite a nice little blend of different different cultures and different sites. Um, and I'd say sort of Riesling's the, the sort of main, the main grape or, or the m- noblest grape um, there. And it's quite cool that we got one to try. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also why, yeah, as Hugo said, some of the names might sound uh, Germanic, like Gewürztraminer, for example, but also the bottles, if you look at them, you know, in a shop, um, I don't know how well you can kind of see them on camera, but you know, the the sort of the style of them looks very Germanic as well. And similar to what you will find, um, you know, certainly the shape of the bottle and some of the text and that kind of thing, it looks Germanic. And it's, might, it's what you might find if you're shopping for, for German wine as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I guess the producer, Rolly Gassman, I so, I mean, this is basically like the coolest fact probably about it is that the families of this uh, winery, the families of Rolly and Gassman, uh, can trace their winemaking history back to sort of like 1661, I think it was, the 1600s, whatever. I, I didn't realise that's how they merged their name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. two families, the Rollies and the Gasmans, and then there was a marriage and they actually set up a formal winery together. But both families can trace their winemaking history back to the 1600s, which when you think about it, is completely mental. That's like being able to trace back your family tree to when the Stuarts were kicking around. Mm. Um, it's actually, uh, yeah, I'll let you into a fun fact. So there's a <laughs> chap in our family, a uh, nice guy, who, who decided to try and do a family tree exercise. Uh, and I don't know how far back he actually... Who, who, who is this? Just, just a random, far-flung uncle. I mean, I, I don't, oh, right, I see. I could, not I not even... like a direct uncle of yours. You mean someone really... No, 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 no. Okay. I mean, I, I'm sure he is closely, more closely related than I, I realised. But yeah. yeah, and he did this like, sort of family tree exercise. And I can tell you, we couldn't even go back that far. And the only thing he found out was that we were that our descendants were cheddar farmers, which is just like, given the fact I'm born and bred in London and probably yeah, the most yeah. urban person you could meet probably fairly boring but yeah you are partial to a cheese and cucumber sandwich though oh i am i am am. so yeah ben and i've gone through a career change and what i can say is uh it it has it has dwindled the number of restaurants and eating out i've been doing and i can safely say i'm on a diet of soup and cheese and cucumber sandwiches and it's uh it's for someone who enjoys food and wine it's a slightly painful existence at the moment but but we're plowing through we're plowing through um what do you what do you think of this wine uh, yeah, I, I love this wine. I love this wine. Um, it's so, yeah, as we mentioned, it's Riesling, uh, from Alsace. Um, I don't know how well it's going to come out on camera. Um, but it, it's quite a rich color. So it's like a golden, almost like a golden yellow. Um, and basically it's, a, it's, a, it's just a really fucking good wine. It gives so much on the nose, so tropical fruits, um, you know, think like, a, you know, mango or, uh, you know, nectarine, peach, that kind of vibe. But it's also got enough sort of sharpness so it's not sweet or sticky it's got sort of a lime rind in there as well and minerality so it's sort of yeah touch mineral a tiny bit maybe salty um and that's on on the nose i haven't actually tried it yet but um 
yeah, it's just, I've had this wine before, it's just really, really good and it's bloody good value. So yeah, we, we said it's about £18 at the moment from uh, London End Wines. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, if you're looking for something for a dinner party, for example, or even a gift, if you're feeling particularly generous and, um, you know, someone's invited you around to dinner, this would be a really, really good bet. And uh, yeah, as you guys said, this is this is the entry level of Rolly Gasman's wines. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more to you know, a lot more to get stuck into. This is just the, this is just the start really. Mm. And what I'd say is like on the palate is it's almost, it's a little bit like the texture of it. It's a little bit unctuous, um, which I quite enjoy. It might not be to like everyone's taste, but it's a little bit unctuous. It's very, very giving. Um, but the acidity is there and it just sort of lifts it. Um, I think some people could be in the camp where they might think it's ever so slightly sweet, I'd completely understand. Yeah, if they just going to say it almost comes across that way. Yeah, yeah, if they did say that. But I think the acidity is such that it lifts it still. Um, and it, yeah, it's in a, a really good camp. So yeah, definitely give it a whirl um, and, and you know, see what you think. And yeah, you can buy it from London End Wines and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll post the link so you guys can check it out. But the acidity is a, a trait of Alsatian wines, of wines from Alsace, right? Yeah, all the Germanic wines have pretty, all, all the Germanic grape varieties have um, pr- pretty high acid. I mean, that's not completely true, like of all of them. But, you know, when you think about like Riesling, um, you know, Pinot Gris, uh, you know, Pinot Blanc, they're all they're all relatively high acid wines. And some of those dry German Rieslings, and I know we've got um, a guest coming on, uh, you know, in upcoming episodes, who they've got an amazing wine shop that that does amazing dry German wines. I mean, some of those for are real acid bombs. Uh, I'm, I have to say I'm a bit of an acid head. Like I do like acid in wines. Um, but, but yeah, so, so for me, this is kind of right on my street and that's why I like Riesling. But um, yeah, they can be very, very acidic. Uh, but that means they've got great aging potential and, you know, that yeah. lots lots to go at. Yeah, the acidity cuts through the, the ripeness and the uh almost the sweetness of the of the fruit um and it also means they can age for a really really long time um and the cool thing about <clears throat> Rolly Gasman just speaking of age is that um basically they only release their wines when um they think they're ready to drink so this is 2019 vintage which is the latest vintage on the market so it's already got sort of 4 years of age on it and it's just quite cool because you know a lot of producers will bottle it and sell it um immediately because uh, you know, the wines, one, it's sort of might be deemed ready by then. And two, you know, these guys have been been waiting all year to, you know, harvest the grapes and uh, they need to make some money out of it. So to have something that's sort of, you know, had four years of age on it already um, is quite cool. And these guys, that's their philosophy. They only release the wines to the market when they when they deem them as ready. So, um, you know, not everyone does that. And that's that's also a cool thing about the, the Gasmans. Yeah, exactly. Um Let's move on to the the next wine. I think uh, I'm still on the wine. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'll do. I'll just do a little bit of a uh, an intro to it, um, and then you can you can chill out and drink, <laughs> drink that one a bit because um, it is really nice. Um, so yeah, yeah it is one o'clock though on a yeah Wednesday afternoon, but I'm not sure how much spitting I'll be doing this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So the next one is uh, an Argentine wine, uh, a wine from Argentina. And uh, it's a Pinot Noir, 100% Pinot Noir, and it's produced uh, in the south of the country in the region of Patagonia. I think the vintage is 2021. And the producer is called uh, Bodega Chakra. Uh, and this one we bought from uh, a wine merchant called Leon Sanderman. Um, Benny, you're, you, you know Leon Sanderman 
particularly well. Um, just a quick quick note on sort of where people can find them and sort of what they're about. Yeah, Lee and Sandman, really, really cool. London-based wine merchant, but they they ship wines uh, all across the country. So if you're not based in London, um, you can just order online. Um, but essentially, they started 35 years ago. A guy called Charles Lee and a guy called Patrick Sanderman uh, set, set up the business. Um, unfortunately, Patrick died back in 2012, um, but Charles Lee is still going strong with his team. Um, and they're just a really good London wine merchant. They've got five shops, Barnes, Chiswick, uh, Fulham Road, or a couple on the Fulham Road, and then Notting Hill. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Notting Hill is the fifth one. Um, so they're kind of dotted around London. They've got a really good range. Um, and it's kind of one of those London wine shops where... Um, you know, if you just go in and pick up a bottle, uh, you know, speak to, speak to um, someone in the shop, tell them a bit about what you're looking for and what you like. You, you very, very rarely come out with something that, you know, you, you don't think's sort of worth worth drinking. I'd say it's a really, they're just a really safe bet. Um, you know, you know what you're going to be getting is good. And they, I mean, they've got just, well, they've got shed loads of wines from... Uh, yeah. from all over really i'd say the um, geographical diversity is pretty cool there as well it is yeah i mean they've like, got a big focus on you know, france want, and italy but yeah you know yeah we're drinking wine from patagonia um yeah it's really well sourced they've got yeah huge range yeah huge and range. It's, yeah it's we, we went to a tasting uh with them not so long ago uh and yeah it was just just really really good and they've got basically wines from across the world uh you know they haven't just like got something in a specific <laughs> vertical or country so yeah oh, also just on that front i think it's worth saying that if you're on their newsletter and stuff they do, um, you know, you, you can go to these tastings that they put on probably every quarter. Uh, there's another one coming up next month, which is focused on the Rhone. Um, and we went to their, their annual uh, autumn tasting. But, you know, if you're on their newsletter, you might see emails that invite you to the tasting. So it's a really good way. And, and lots of London wine merchants do this as well. And um, it's just a really good way of getting to know a merchant's range. And, you know, a ticket might cost you 40 quid, but, you know, on the night you could try we have access to 100 and I think there were 140 wines at the last tasting we did. I don't think you're ever going to get through 140 wines in one oh, session. I, I, don't, I, don't <clears throat> know. I literally have no idea how those people do it. Yeah, it's, it's slightly <laughs> absurd. But, you know, if you're like us and you just want to go along, try some cool wines um, and also, you know, find stuff, you know, find wines and styles of wines that you, you know, uh, you might not necessarily like and you can kind of remember that and then also find wines that you do really like. It just helps you frame your understanding of, you know, kind of when you walk into a wine shop what kind of you know grapes or regions you might want to be might want to be focusing on really. yeah back to this then the the bodega chakra the the bardo which is what this wine's called um i guess for anyone who just doesn't know anything about uh argentine wine uh it's one of like the biggest uh wine producers in the world now i think well it's really out of date this this stat but i read somewhere like ages ago that it's the fifth largest producer but i think the book that i read that from was published in 2005 so i've got absolutely no idea whether argentina is still the fifth largest but most of the wine is sort of grown in the the north of the country around mendoza and which is know, on the on the western western side yeah on the on the sort of western <clears throat> side um and you know it's fairly international what they're mainly known for argentina what people pinpointed to is Malbec, but also other international varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon. Merlot. Exactly. Um, And, but what's cool about this one is that here we're looking at something much further south in Patagonia, which is the sort of southern region of Argentina. Um, And we're looking at um, a Pinot Noir and it's better suited to sort of producing cold, cold, uh, cold climate grapes like Pinot uh, and and Chardonnay. Um, So yeah, and I guess setting the scene for just sort of like Patagonia. I mean, this specific 
uh, wine is produced in a place called Rio Negro. And it's just to set the scene. I mean, it's where like two rivers converge, but I learned this term uh, just doing a bit of reading, but it's where two melt rivers reach or, or meet, sorry. And a melt river, yeah. uh, apparently, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I yeah, mean, I assume it's, it's something to do with glaciers or something. Well, exactly. It's where like, uh, if a glacier starts sort of melting or something, the water um, can run off. And if it hits the sort of natural river channel, um, and forms a river, then that becomes um, a melt river. But I so think it's fed by two a... two of these melt rivers, this Rio Negro region. Okay. But it's fed by the glacier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or partly fed by the glacier. So what happens when that glacier starts melting? Like climate change stuff, just maybe we get big old river. Yeah, Patagonia could be flooded. No, no, no. I'm just <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to spread conspiracy. Don't want to spread conspiracy. But I guess it just gives like a context that you know we're not a gazillion miles away from a glacier, so it's much more cool climate than you. I think typically associate with with Argentina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. Um, I mean, do you want to talk more about the the producer and go into? Yeah, yeah. Their, I can. I should, should, we, should, we, should we try the give wine? It, yeah, or? maybe give it a give it a little sample. Actually, let's give it a go. We have we have this is one of the wines actually that we tried at the Leon Sandman tasting. Uh, well, about a month ago now. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, on the night when they had 140, 140 different wines on show. Um, so we tried it there. Um, it was actually really cool because the, uh, the 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 guy that produces this or makes the wine, the winemaker, he's called Piero, um, and all of his wines he produces about uh, I'm going to say eight off the top of my head. Produces about eight wines. All of them were on show that night, and yeah, it's just really really cool to you know talk to the winemaker um, about the wines that you know. Have or, to say, Piero was a suave looking man, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he did me to shame. I, I don't know what <laughs> I was wearing, but it, it was embarrassing. Yeah, um, and they also produce white wines as well, Chardonnay. Yeah, I know you mentioned Chardonnay, cool climate, but um, yeah, the 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 white wines that they produce as well, um, quite sophisticated, and they're you know they're 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 not cheap, but they are really really um, they're really really cool. Yeah, really really nice. And one one of the quite cool things about where they're situated is that they because it's quite far south, they've got this quite extreme temperature range. So you know, in winter it kind of snows and gets to sort of like minus five or something, but in summer you know, it's getting up to sort of 35 degrees. But what that basically means, just in very short terms, is that the grapes achieve full ripeness. So you get like good fruit on the wines, but they're always fresh and the acidity is lively because, you know, the nighttime temperatures drop, um, meaning that the grapes remain fresh. Uh, and also they've got like genuine seasons. So there's always like decent water retention in the soil and things like that. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it's like actually a really, really interesting place. Although you're zooming in on it on Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. And it's, well, you can say it. I mean. Well, it's, it's, it's quite funny because I was just having, <clears throat> literally going Google Maps to find exactly where this producer was. And the, the landscape is just fucking barren. There is like, there's nothing. It's almost just like, you know, think about like the American Midwest almost. There's just this wasteland. And the Argentines probably hate me for saying this because it's quite beautiful, but it is, but <laughs> yeah. it is, it hey, is. Bingo, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um, but there is this, it is sort of barren sort of wasteland, you know, rocks and dust and just a, just an endless landscape. It's quite amazing. But then all around the Rio Negro, there's this band of just sort of like a green belt, if you like. Um, and there's quite a lot of wine produced along the river. Um, and it's suddenly, you know, suddenly the landscape changes, everything's green. And these, these wines are produced very, very close to the river, or at least in the valley where it flows through. So, um, you know, there's in terms of, yeah, access to, to, to water, <clears throat> um, you know, that's sort of 
yeah, plenty of access to water um, because the rest of the landscape is literally just, I mean, I don't know if you looked at it, but it's just, there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I always remember because actually we, we traveled around Argentina. <clears throat> Sorry, the wine went down the wrong way. Um, <laughs> But we we travelled a bit round Argentina, and when you go on these sort of long coach journeys from sort of A to B, oh, I mean twenty hours or something. Yeah, like twenty hours. You know, it's honestly there is just like vast swathes of just open land, um, and yeah, I can imagine this because we didn't even get that far south. But I can imagine this being even more rugged and rural than some of the stuff we were travelling through. Yeah, yeah, big time, big time. So another cool thing just about this producer um, that we wanted to touch upon. So. First point is that in the winemaking, uh, it's pretty low intervention in the sense, so this is 100% Pinot, but they ferment it in like these cement tanks and stuff. But when they age it, often what you'd see is like in Burgundy uh, or in parts of Burgundy where Pinot Noir is like most associated with, you know, they use a little bit of, what well, at times a little bit of oak, but some producers use quite a lot of oak. Um, and with this, the oak is, you know, it, it, it's pretty they don't use a, a lot to age it. You know, 50% of it is firstly not in oak, I think. Yeah, and then 50% cement. Of, of the other 50% that is in oak, it's a very small percentage that's in new oak. And typically the new oak is toasted and therefore imparts more flavour into the wine than, than the sort of oak barrels. And I think you can taste that because it's super fresh. What, what, what did you actually think of the wine? Yeah, I, I, I really like it. Obviously, second time second time trying it. It's the the profile of the wine it's it's red fruits but it's not sort of ripe juicy red fruits it's slightly drier sort of strawberry raspberry i get like an element of like a like a candied orange dried orange maybe but just just an element of that and then um also and this isn't to do with the oak but there's sort of a slight woodiness in the profile of the wine as well uh on the nose but it's 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 lifted it's clean uh you know it's it's pretty fresh uh, and i think if you you know if you were drinking you could get through you know, a decent amount of this. It's very, it's very sort of yeah. know, drinkable, profitable. I, I also like on the nose, it's got that sort of like slightly earthy vegetal character, but then it's also got this like nice fruit profile as well. So it's got like a bit of tertiary stuff going on. Um, and the vegetal stuff, you know, if you were tasting it blind, uh, you wouldn't necessarily think of like a, perhaps like a new world Pinot. Um, so yeah, I think this, honestly, it's really cool. And just the fact that like you can go and find uh, something produced in Patagonia just on your standard high street in London is just pretty sick. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think we've, I don't think we've mentioned price yet, but it retails yeah. something around the twenty-seven pound mark. Yeah, I think it's about that. Pounds, yeah, something which like, which yeah. I think is fair value for money. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's good value for money. You know, it's like it's a good wine, and it probably be, I think it's basically priced at uh, the quality of the wine, which is good. Yeah, yeah. You want. I'd agree. I'd agree. The, the only other thing I wanted to just touch on with this is that so there's a funky sort of uh, viticultural. Uh, practice or approach to farming and winemaking that's called biodynamics and the best way i can just describe it simply is uh, you know that it's to increase the biodiversity in the vineyard and to basically make healthy soils and a healthy environment for the grapes to grow i mean that's basically the purpose of it but i have to say it does raise some eyebrows because it's also whilst all of it is quite logical it does have some bits where it's partly influenced by homeopathy and it's also the planting cycles and when you do things is aligned with astrological formations. So when the moon's in a certain position or when the stars and things mm, like this. Mm. So it's all a bit nuts. And we were actually reading on the uh, Bodega Chakra website and you guys can check this out. I've had to write it down my notepad because I genuinely couldn't, I couldn't really like sort of get my head around some of the stuff, but I'm going to read you some of the things that they do in the vineyards uh, because it is just like slightly extraordinary. But I'll tell you what, if this isn't commitment to winemaking, uh, then I don't know what is. What are you, which one are you, which sort of uh, wacky, 
well, like I'll your g- practice. I, you okay, I'll give with. you two. So they do one thing called horn manure preparation. So this is me re- reading directly from what is on their website. But um, they basically fill uh, the horn of a lactating cow with dung from the same animal. And then they bury that horn in autumn uh, under the top layer of soil and then leave it for six months. And supposedly that increases soil bacteria, uh, fungi and earthworm activity uh, and essentially creates a better, a better soil. Another one is... A kind of thing is that 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 kind of makes sense because you're putting, you know, cow shit manure in some form into the soil. You know, that's yeah. what, you know, yeah. typically you do just, if you want fertile it's just, soil. And- it just sucks if you're the guy putting the cow shit in the horn. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> scoop it up and yeah, dump it in the ground. And then they also do something called yarrow preparation. So listen to this one. A stag's bladder is stuffed with de-stemmed yarrow flowers and left hanging under the sun in the summer. The preparation is then... God, that must fucking is then yeah <laughs> is then buried in winter and it results in the mobilization of sulfur and potassium in the soil. So, I mean, the the thing that raises eyebrows is like you know why does it need to be a cow horn or or, or a stag's bladder? But I guess the cool thing is is that these people people who do biodynamic farming basically end up saying that it, it improves. Um, their wines. And actually, one of the things I've started noticing is all the wines we like and drink, not all of them, but a large, large percentage are now practicing biodynamics. So although there's sort of like things that raise eyebrows and you're like, why the hell do they need a cow horn or a stag's bladder? Uh, on the flip side, uh, actually, it seems to, you know, increase the biodiversity and create great soil uh, and, and seems to contribute to, to a great ecosystem for grapes. But we were we were talking to um, we were talking to a wine merchant uh, recently who was you know, he 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 knows quite a lot about biodynamic practices and all that kind of thing and um, he was speaking to uh, his suppliers so you know winemakers and growers um, who were kind of you know they knew about biodynamics but they're skeptical about the, the idea of it, idea of it and actually doing it etc cetera, etc cetera. anyway you know some of them um, you know started doing it and ultimately found that the not only did the quality of the wines improve um, after a, a, a sort of biodynamics is not something you can just sort of start well you can start but it's not a it's a sort of transitionary process it takes about yeah. three years you don't just wake up and everything's better yeah yeah exactly it takes about three years to sort of run through all the different practices that you have to do to uh, even look to gain certification of being biodynamic but these winemakers are basically saying that once they transitioned to biodynamics they couldn't believe it because not only did the wine quality improve but the vines themselves seem to become more resilient to uh, the elements so you know uh, the weather and and also uh, you know disease and rot and that kind of thing um on the flip side of that it does mean that if you know the, the the weather turns and there you know you start getting you know mildew and rot on the grapes there isn't that much you can do about it because you can't use a load of chemicals to um sort of ward that off but basically the winemakers who were slightly skeptical about it came full circle having tried it and actually thought well you know this is this is worth doing yeah yeah, yeah which you know for you know cuz to us i think hanging a stag's bladder in the sun for 6 months over the summer or something and then I can't even remember what you said. You bury it in the soil. Put, or put it this way: I'd rather be it a sounds wine, pretty odd. I'd rather be a wine drinker than a than a winemaker. I mean, if I'm, I don't want to stuff a stag's bladder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, it seems to work. It seems yeah. to work. In um, you know, it's it's all to do with the lunar calendar as well. Um, and it does sound a bit fugazi, fugazi, um, half of it. But 
those who do it um, or who are skeptics and have done it do say that it works. So, yeah. as I said, most of the wine we like is 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 mm. now biodynamic. Yeah. Um, cool, Benny. Take it away on the final one. Oh, okay. The 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 Musa. I, I might uh, actually happy to. Um, yeah, happy happy to say that I reckon from a lot of the episodes that we do, this wine, the Musa, will be sort of, if there's one wine that you hear us sort of chatting about um, or that you think, you know, you, you, or that we think you should buy, it will be the Musa. So I love Musa. I absolutely love the wine. Um, it's a red wine. It's from Lebanon. It's from the Becca Valley. Um, and I was first introduced to it, actually, um, by my girlfriend. And she said, oh, yeah, 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 there's this wine that I really, really like. And Waitrose sell it. And it's called Chateau Montrose. And I was thinking, fucking hell, because for those that don't know, Chateau Montrose is like 150 quid a bottle. Um, <laughs> it's like not your not your standard stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, yeah, we, yeah. we were... Q I, I, I roll from Bren. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, we, we, you know, we went into Waitrose and there it was on the shelf, but it wasn't Chateau Montrose, it was Chateau Moussa. I'd never heard of it before, didn't know anything about it, where it was from, what the grapes were, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we bought a bottle um, and it was the 2003 vintage and we took it home and tried it. And shit, this, I just thought, fuck, this wine is so, so good like absolutely amazing um i ended up well over the a couple of years buying you know, a decent amount um you know when there were promos on and that kind of thing um because i just really think it's such a such an amazing wine so yeah it's produced in uh it's produced in lebanon in the becca valley uh the great varieties are cabernet sauvignon and then sasso and then Carignan. So it's those three great varieties. But where this is produced, it's super uh, high altitude. So all the they do produce a white wine as well, which we'll, we'll feature in another episode. But for purposes of this, we'll focus on the red wine. Um, so all the grapes for the red wine are at fifteen hundred meters of altitude, a minimum of right mm-hmm. or above. And fifteen hundred meters of altitude—that's like ski resort altitude. That's higher than some ski resorts. Like it's, it's pretty nuts, and it's produced, you know, in Lebanon, which is a you know, quite a hot country. You know, you, you have to know much. No, it's going to be pretty warm out there, um, and you know that's why, given the the altitude, uh, given the temperatures, and talking of diurnal, what's it called, diurnal? Oh, yeah, it's a complicated word to say, but it's diurnal di- or diurnal, whatever it is. It's a diurnal temperature. Essentially, just means. Uh, there's fluctuating temperatures between night hot and day. Hot in the day, um, cool at night. Because it gets really hot in yeah. the day and therefore you need the cooler nights to ensure there's not too much stress on the vines. And it means that the grapes reach ripeness, similar to what we were talking about with the barter, reach ripeness but retain uh, freshness and acidity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well said, Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> we just, just, just got to remember the word for, um, yeah. for, for next time. But yeah, this is... Um, this is a really, really cool wine. I'd encourage any wine that we we have on the episode. I think we're going to be, you know, if you if there's one that you should try, it'd be the Musa. And don't, don't listen to any other episode because <laughs> you, you've already heard our secret. Yeah. No, 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 no. no, genuinely, I, I I do feel that you know if we're ten episodes down the line, I'd be surprised if we have another one. That I'm like, yeah, good listeners, do go for this because yeah, it's it's so cool. It's, um, it's got a pretty cool history as well. Yeah. Um, just so like, just to place it into context. Um, so yeah, as Ben said, Becca Valley, it's in uh, Lebanon, uh, super high altitude. But one of the things that's quite cool, so they, um, the, the Lebanese, by the way, have uh, like produced wine 
um, for like, there's records of it going back 4,000 years. I mean, I don't know how accurate any of that is and nor do I really care, but um, it goes back 4,000 years to the Phoenician times. But this particular winery, Chateau Moussard, was founded by a chap called Gaston Gaston Hotcha, Hotcha, yeah, Gaston Hotcha, yeah, uh, yeah, in the in the 1930s, um, and it's just got a nice history because it's intermingled with a couple of different countries, and he he started the the, the vineyard and, and planting, and then um, in the Second World mm-hmm. War, um, some some of the French were stationed out there, and there's a famous chateau called uh, in Bordeaux called uh, Leerville Barton, and there's this. Um, you know, and that's similar to like Chateau Montrose that Ben early, uh, stated earlier, you know, it sells at quite a high price. It's like a super cool wine that's on, you know, it's a collectible. Um, not that Musar isn't, but um, yeah, the, one of the descendants of that family, Ronald Barton, um, was stationed there during the war and they sort of befriended each other. And it led to Gaston's son, Serge, uh, being sent out there uh, to France to study enology uh I can't remember where, but I think it was in Bordeaux. Um, and it surged that when he then took over the winery, mm. developed sort of Chateau Moussard's um, sort of signature blend. Um, and it's interesting because that Bordeaux... Which is why you have the the, the Cabernet. Yeah, well, that's actually... Which, which is why it's interesting that you've got this Cabernet uh, Sauvignon, which is a Bordeaux grape at the heart of this. But it's also complemented, interestingly, by Sanso and Carignan, which are two grape varieties that are traditionally grown in the Southern Rhone. Um, and also um, a bit in southern France in Languedoc, but they're also quite different in profile. To Complete, yeah, yeah, completely different in in profile. They're like gamey, smoky, whereas Cabernet's got like clear sort of blackcurrant cassis fruit with a nice like sort of tannic structure. So what you end up with is this sort of like smoky Rhone meat structured Bordeaux, uh, and the combination of it you know, if we just want to chuck in words, makes it sort of like structured, but ethereally Burgund- Burgundian and almost, you know, wild and Rhone. And, you know, it's, it's just like- a- AKA a- fucking good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, in short, without all the pretentious language, really, yeah, really fucking yeah. good. Um, and yeah, and they've managed to produce wine all the way through Lebanon's recent history, which hasn't always been easy. I mean, there was like a 15 year civil war between us, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but it's like 75 to 90. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, 1975 to 1990. And um, yeah, they, they managed to produce all the way through that. I think they only missed one vintage. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Serge or Gaston, I can't remember which one. It must've been Serge. Serge, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he was yeah. running the win- winery. Yeah, exactly. Actually got made uh, Decanter's Wine Man of the Year uh, as a result of that. Um, just to, 1984 or something. Yeah, 84. Yeah. Um, but I think that just sort of showcases, you know, they've really gone above and beyond to keep keep the winery going. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a really cool wine. Benny, what do, you, what do you sort of think on the taste profile? Yeah, the um, as Hugo touched on there, the, the, the taste is like somewhere between... Uh, like aged Burgundy, Rhone, and Bordeaux. Um, it's 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 figgy. Uh, there's sort of plum. It's like a real Christmassy wine because you have like baking spices in there. There's like a <clears throat> you know cinnamon, clove type profile to it. But it's you know uh, prune, plum, dates, figs. It's that that kind of profile. And um, what's kind of cool about this is the 2010. 
vintage. Um, the most recent to the market is the 2017. Um, and actually, similar to the Gazman, uh, Chateau Moussard only released their wine to the market when they deem them ready to drink. So as I said, the 2017 is the most recent to the market, which we haven't actually tried. This is the 2010, so it does now have some age on it. But because of that spicy, um, you know, uh, dried fruit figgy, character on the nose you would probably if you had this blind you would definitely think it was older than what it is and if you have musar and you get that if you try musar and you get that profile a lot of people think oh you know this is you know the end of its drinking window because it's got that slightly more mature profile to it but actually that's just the typically the style of musar really mm. um so although I haven't actually tried it, I haven't actually tasted it yet, but just on the nose, that's that's what I'm getting. And I've had, well, we've had uh, quite a few vintages of Musar now. I think we've had 98, 99, 2000, the 1, 3, and 5, and now the 10. Um, but I'd say that the classic Musar nose or profile is that spicy sort of figgy character. What I would say is that all the um, the, the blends of the grapes change um depending on the vintage. Um, so what I'd advise is there's obviously like a clear like Moussard style, but they do change quite a lot depending on the vintage. So whilst very happy to recommend the 2010, I'd also encourage anyone to get out there and, and try them. And the wine merchant that we've uh, sourced this one from um, is called Sandoms. Uh, I think they're based in, I can't remember, but I think it's Lincoln. Uh, and yeah, they've, um, uh, they sell like, quite a few different vintages so obviously we'll post the link to this 2010 but check out the whole set that they've got because if you wanted to and i would encourage this they've got even older musar vintages and the 98 from our side comes highly recommended yeah the 98 and the 03 are like really really stellar wines um not that this isn't it's just you know those are obviously slightly older they've got a bit more maturity on them and i think we prefer that 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 kind of profile um but yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely do check them out. Um, as Hugo said, it does change quite a bit. So, you know, being being in Lebanon, this, the 2010 vintage uh, was apparently really, really hot. Um, and vin- the, the temperature peaked uh, 48 and a half degrees, um, which is quite interesting because when it gets that hot, it actually shuts uh, the vines down. It stresses them out so much that the vines shut down, they stop um, they actually sort of the, the fruit stops ripening and it dries or it starts to dry um, when it's still on the vine. So they lost 45% of their Cabernet Sauvignon grapes that year. So this blend is made up more of the Carignan and the Sanso. I don't know what the exact blend is, but depending on on the weather, they do change it. I think typically they aim for a third of each. Yeah. It's funny because I'd be lying they do, if I... they do change it. I'd be lying if I could say that I could sense... Uh, or taste more more Carignan and Sansa than that. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah, but yeah. The only yeah, thing I would say is just compared to some of the other vintages, it's surprisingly uh, like elegant for like how young it is versus the others. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's quite as structured, and maybe it is actually quite approachable. Mm, uh, it, it's more to, approachable to be because I think when we had the this is to be fair, this is probably what four or five years ago now. But when we had the 05, that was a bit of a blockbuster of a while. Yes. It was like. Yeah. fairly impenetrable whereas this is definitely definitely more open yeah definitely um so yeah that's that's musar probably you know 
Yeah, one of one of our one of our favorites. And as we said, you know, this won't be the last you hear from Musa because we'll probably keep talking about it. And B, uh, we'll get the the white on a on a future episode. Um, yeah, we've got the white in the same vintage, so keep an eye out for that because it'll be cool to cool yeah to keep an eye out for that. But I think that pretty much wraps everything that we've got to to cover on this episode. I guess just from our side, guys, anyone who's made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Uh, obviously, it was our first episode, so excuse all the the pausing and the the, the stuttering. Um, but on whatever platform you're listening to this or watching this on, um, you know, give us a comment. Tell you what you tell us what you like and don't like, and then we can try and start making sure that whatever we're putting out there uh, is exactly what you guys want to hear and want to hear from us on. Um, and I think you know, we're, as we said, you know, if you could, it would be really good for this podcast if you could like or sub, like this video or, or the podcast on whatever channel you're watching it on. Uh, subscribe to our channel and also give us a follow on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you might even catch us one day in the future on TikTok doing some dancing. We definitely won't be dancing. No, 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 no. Uh, not that far. And, not that far. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much all from us. You'll be able to find uh, the links to the wines on our social uh, and also Which is at the Premier Crew. Yeah, yeah, I should say that. Yeah. Oh no, we did say it at the beginning. Yeah, the name of the podcast is The Premier Crew. Um, and so you can find that that's the name that you type in on any social platform or on any audio platform. Um, so yeah, please check us out. Give us a follow. Uh, and yeah, stay tuned for updates. We'll be back again.